Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk, where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about stuff. I'm Emily. And I'm Sarah. And today Sarah's going to go ahead and go first. I'm going to talk about U.S. nuclear test sites. And I'm not going to get too in-depth about this because there is a ridiculous amount of information. And I got really confused reading all of it and going into like all the bombs that were dropped and the type of bombs and et cetera, et cetera. So I'm just going to very quickly go over what is a nuclear test site. The U.S. performed nuclear tests mostly for weapons between 1945 to 1992-ish, 1996-ish. The count is about 1,054, most of them taking place at the Nevada National Security Site that used to be called the Nevada Test Site and in the Pacific Ocean at the Proving Grounds in the Bikini Atoll area. The U.S. is not the only country that did nuclear testing. I would like to note that. The global count of nuclear weapons testing is about 2,000, so we only did about 1,000 of that. Most of them by the USSR, no surprise. But it is notable that other countries got in on the action as well, so this is not all the U.S.'s fault. <laughs> the, um, so I'm going to do a quick rundown, just a very quick list so everybody knows what I'm talking about when I get to the next part. Where did they go? What are they doing now? <laughs> the Pacific Proving Grounds, which I mentioned earlier, the U.S. got a, a lot of the like little micro-nation atolls in the Pacific Ocean, and we started doing nuclear testing because of the near nearness to Japan for World War II and after World War II. I'm going to do a, like a tiny little list of them. There's Bikini Atoll, Anawatak Atoll, Johnston Atoll, which is very close to Hawaii, into the Pacific Ocean, and then Kiram, Kiritamati Kiribati, which is called Christmas Island. Then there's the most popular one, the Nevada National Security Site in Nye County, Nevada, 65 miles northwest of Las Vegas. And the site in Nevada is about the size of the state of Rhode Island. It's a huge parcel of land. And there's various flats, like the Frenchman Flats, the Yucca Flats, Shoshone Mountain, Rainier Mesa, etc. It was established in 1951 and used until 1992. In the 50s, the mushroom clouds from the site could be seen for 100 miles, which is terrifying. According to a Wikipedia article and other articles I read around that you could actually, from Las Vegas, from downtown hotels, see the mushroom clouds and, and feel the ground shake from the bombs. The last atmospheric test de detonation, so they, they exploded them, in the air as well, at the Nevada site was in 1962. The South Atlantic, so apparently we launched rockets into the ionosphere for a little bit, testing if we could stop ICBMs in the air up there. Nuclear rockets? Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, great. Great. <laughs> good job. I'm going to direct everyone after this episode to the Chernobyl fallout <laughs> episode, just so you can see what happens to nuclear fallout when it's in the air. Yes. Then there's the Amchitka Island and Aleutian Islands. They did underground testing of weapons, so they were doing everything underground. 
There's the seismic testing verification sites where they would do explosions underground just to see if they could tell the seismic data uh, from far away. In Mississippi, <laughs> and, <Hey. laughs> and at Rainier Mesa, which I mentioned earlier. And then we're going to get to Lo Los Alamos, New Mexico. The Los Alamos lab was the first national laboratory secretly created to test nuclear weapons. It was part of the Manhattan Project. There's Tech Area 49. It has no aliens in it. I'm sorry. The open area south of the, lab, of the lab was used to test the metallurgy of plutonium. Then there's the White Sands Missile Range, which is also in New Mexico. It was established in 1945. It is a 3,200-square-mile U.S. military testing site. It's still there. It was established to test long-range rockets. And at White Sands, near White Sands, is the Trinity site. It's the northern boundary of White Sands. And this is the site of the first nuclear weapons test, a plutonium bomb. On July 16, 1945, they tested the first nuclear weapon at the Trinity site. And less than a month later, we, of course, um, dropped the nuclear bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima in Japan. So there's a long list for you if you're curious about any of them. There's a lot of information about all of them. A lot of it is scary. And then we'll go into, are any still used today? Not really. The what, As I said, the White Sands Missile Ranch missile range is still used by the military today for materials testing, for data collecting, and for intramilitary lab and command operations. They do a bunch of like intermilitary stuff there and there's data collection for both the Navy, the US Army and the Marines there. And there's also some private industry there as well. So the reason for this is in September, 1996, the US signed the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty along with China, France, the UK, and Russia. It is or was a multilateral treaty signed by key countries that agreed to ban all nuclear explosions, thankfully, for military and civilian purposes. As of 2016, the treaty was still not ratified by the US, though we do abide by it. We did sign it, mostly because there are other states that have refused to sign and endorse the treaty. So we're being like, well, they didn't sign it, so we don't have to endorse it kind of a thing. But we do still abide by it. We abide by the treaty, but have not done so and have not done significant nuclear testing since. Thankfully, there were numerous other instances in the past, including a partial nuclear weapons ban in the 70s that we tried with Russia. And as a child of the 80s, I pretty clearly recall Ronald Reagan was not a fan of nuclear weapons, and I think this has a lot to do with it. You can say whatever you want about Reagan, but he really, really didn't like nuclear weapons and did not want to have any around. I have a Reagan quote, quote if you all want one, and there's tons of them about nuclear weapons. He said, a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. The only value in our two nations possessing nuclear weapons is to make sure they will never be used. But then it would it not be better just to do away with them entirely? It was, it, I remember this pretty clearly. I remember how against nuclear weapons Ronald Reagan was. 
And a lot of the push to ban nuclear testing was because of the fallout in the United States of the previous weapons testing in the 60s that fell on poor Utah and other places that were downwind of Nevada and New Mexico. It's been found that those people downwind have higher incidences of leukemia and other cancers related to the nuclear fallout testing. And again, you should, if you're interested, listen to the Chernobyl fallout and you can kind of get an idea of how serious fallout can be from nuclear from nuclear disasters. And how fast it can move. I mean, you're thinking about northwest of Las Vegas in Nevada. And Las Vegas is on, the like, close to the border, is it not? <clears throat> no? Las Vegas is more in the middle. Okay, so it's away from the middle of the state and managed to get to a completely other enormous state. Yes. Like this proving grounds, the size of Rhode Island, like you said. Yeah. So it traversed the size of Rhode Island and then the size of Nevada and then into Utah. Well, and then they were exploding stuff uh, in the air as well. So imagine all those mushroom clouds, like going up and into the air and going into Utah. Poor Mormons. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Can you visit some of them? Yeah, you actually can visit some of them. You can actually take a guided tour um, if you arrange it. There's actually a website you can go to and take a guided tour. They do them once a month. You can go to Trinity site in New Mexico, which, of course, was the first place they detonated the uh, atom bomb. They tested the nuclear bomb um, just before they dropped a couple on Japan. It's open to the public the first Saturday in April, so you can't just wander there whenever you want. There's an obelisk statue to commemorate the site. Then, of course, there's Doom Town or Survival Town or the Apple II houses. You might have seen the videos of those horrifying neighbor fake neighborhoods that they built of the little houses full of mannequin families. Oh, they reference this in Futurama. Yes. The mannequin families, which it's just really creepy. It's this whole little town that they built so that they could see like the the effect of the nuclear bomb blasts on houses and these little mannequin families, poor little mannequin families, that was and this whole thing was the site of the of 14 nuclear tests. You can view it on Google Maps and there's actually some really satisfying pictures online you can't take like a public like a sunday drive out there it's not really open to the public but you can do a guided tour if you ever want to go out there then there's the sedan crater which is actually not too far from the yucca flats doom town the crater was created from a 1962 underground nuclear test it can be seen from space or if you don't want to go to space you can take the guided tour of this as well. <laughs> you can arrange this through the uh, national, what, what did I say it was? The Nevada National Security Site. I just have the initials here, so I had to remember what it was. Public Affairs website at nnss.gov. And when I looked at the website, there's actually, you can do both. It's a 250-mile, like, guided tour that I guess you're on buses for and they will take you to Doomtown and the sedan crater and I guess tr the Trinity side because my impression is the Trinity side is actually not that far away from this then there is this is kind of special you're going to need a helicopter for this one but you can fly over it and see it the nuclear crater dome in the Marshall Islands 
There is a hundred thousand foot concrete dome in Run Dome in Runnet Island in the Marshall Islands that you can fly over. It is in the dome is the radioactive debris and soil that was collected in the 70s from efforts to clean up over the hundred atmospheric nuclear testing areas in the area after World War II into the Cold War. Yay. It is notable that the small Pacific Proving Grounds islands are supposedly extremely beautiful, tropical jungle islands, but because of the nuclear fallout, you can't go there. They're uninhabitable. So birds can go there, bees can go there, you can't go there, much like Chernobyl. So they're like the exclusion zone and then the sarcophagus. Yes. So we made our own exclusion zone and yes. sarcophagus. Good. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad we're talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> White Sands Missile Range is oh, still open is and like I said is run uh, it's called the White Sand Missile Test Center or White Sand Test Center and is run by the US Army and it's the US Army and Evaluation Center it still does Department of Defense materials testing like I said and does environmental testing as well there is a White Sands Missile Range Museum, which I actually really want to go to after doing all this research, where you can see rockets and learn about the atomic tests. I do want to do the guided test of Doomtown. I thought that would be fun. The museum is open to the public year-round from sunrise to sunset on weekdays. Apparently, the Las Cruces and White Sands National Monument are absolutely beautiful. From the pictures I've seen, they're just all gypsum, so the... The sand is gorgeous. It's like a gorgeous white. So you can take the tour of the missile range, enjoy Las Cruces, and think about the atom bomb. <laughs> and like I said, we were not the only country to do missile testing, nuclear bombs testing, but we did a significant portion of it. So go visit some old missile testing ranges and nuclear tests and go see the mannequin families at Doomtown. <laughs> So how radioactive, if, if they're doing guided tours, those places can't be, say, as radioactive as the exclusion zone of Chernobyl. And they're only doing them once a month. So they don't want the public to go there just to wander around. You actually have to go on a guided tour. So I would assume that it is above the level that you should probably be, you shouldn't be around frequently, but you can go there and visit it. Okay. Maybe even like airplane Flying at an airplane exposure level or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. We should put together, and by we, I mean, I'll do this because I'm not going to assign you homework, a map <laughs> of uh, like a, a where does it go road trip. I would love that. That'd be so awesome. Mm -hmm. That'd be fun. We've talked about buying a bus, like the where does it go bus <laughs> full of junk. And apparently I'm going to make everybody cappuccinos. So that's awesome. Perfect. <laughs> So it's on our bus tour. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll let you know when that's happening. <laughs> I really, really want to go to White Sands now. I saw the pictures. It is gorgeous. I do. I mean, the desert is really beautiful, mm -hmm. even if it's been blown up a few mm -hmm. times, which is awful to say. A lot. It's been blown up a lot, to be fair. Mm -hmm. I guess they were thinking, ah, nobody's out here, except for Las Vegas. Yeah, which is, as we know, rarely accurate that nobody is anywhere. Mm-hmm. My topic is totally unrelated to yours. Which uh, is probably good. It is. And mine is kind of cheerful. This was really fun <laughs> to research. 
I was reading Twitter because I do that a lot. And a man named Mick, a.k.a. at Mikala, at like the amp, at, not the ampersand, the at sign, M-Y-K-O-L-A on Twitter, asked Twitter at large why vanilla was the default flavor and why not other flavors like mint or lemon or whatever. And I know enough about this topic to know some things about old-fashioned flavors, but I didn't know enough to know why vanilla is the default. And so I did some research. And so this is where did old-fashioned flavors go? Ooh. And this is very U.S.-centric, unfortunately. Most of our stuff is because we, we are both English as primary language speakers who live in America. But I tried to incorporate some other information. And I am also excluding flavors that remain popular. Like mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, lemon was a very popular old-fashioned flavor. And it's a very popular new flavor or existing flavor. It's not new. Lemons aren't exactly new. <laughs> it's a popular existing flavor. So it's not something that went away. I also didn't do or talk about black licorice because, well, it's very controversial. It is also a very popular flavor in the U.S., in Europe. I don't know if it's popular outside of the U.S. and Europe. It's really popular in Australia. Oh, yes. You're right. I, yeah, I forgot. Nick, uh, my husband Nick, really likes Australian licorice. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> so one of the reasons that I knew some things about old-fashioned flavors is one of my favorite things to do is read cookbooks. Because there are a lot of cookbooks that actually have a pretty substantial narrative component. And two of them that helped a lot with this research were the Little House on the Prairie cookbook. Oh, that's awesome. And American Cake by Ann Byrne. Okay. And I don't remember who wrote Little House on the Prairie cookbook, which is terrible. Have you mentioned her before? I thought you mentioned American Cookie. I probably have. Okay. I uh, really like her writing, and I really like her research. So the Little House on the Prairie cookbook, I'm going to talk a lot about books in this, because as I was researching this, I was also thinking back on all the different literary references I'm familiar with to these flavors. So the Little House on the Prairie cookbook is actually kind of technically fan fiction. This woman who read the books to her daughters, the daughters would ask them, what did that taste like? How do you make that? And she was like, I don't know. Let's find (laughs) out. And so she put together a book of somewhat modernized, but as authentic as possible with modern availability of ingredients and modern cooking methods, all sorts of recipes and included references from all the Little House on the Prairie books. So it's got a lot of things that are, I mean, cornmeal and pork feature heavily. They're, they're almost all that they ate a lot of the time. I mean, that's understandable. Cornmeal keeps a long time. Corn produces a lot of plants. And pork is easy to preserve. Yeah, salt pork was a very common food. Mm-hmm. And it's a brined pork that they would store in barrels in the brine. And then, like, pull it out of the barrels. <laughs> no, it's like, mm, yummy. <laughs> In the Ingalls Wilder books, uh, lemon was a fancy flavor. Molasses was an everyday flavor. And then there was also a lot of discussion of how special the flavor of white sugar was. 
versus maple syrup and sugar, honey, or molasses because it was rare and expensive. Right. So it was white cake made with refined flour and white sugar was considered kind of its own flavor. And then things like lemonade were very uh, memorable to Laura Ingalls Wilder. And then also in the book American Cake, Anne Byrne goes through the different popular flavors. Oh, and that tippity-tapping in the background is our podcast producer, Shotzi the <laughs> Just thought I'd put that in there. But American Cake talks about the different flavors that were popular in the United States throughout time, and a lot of it had to do with availability. So I'm going to start by talking about flavorful sweeteners mm. and why they aren't as popular today and where, cool. where their popularity went. So we'll start with molasses. As long as there has been sugarcane production in the Americas, there has been an excess of molasses. So sugar, when refined from sugarcane, is brownish. It contains molasses as a, what, what is considered a byproduct, and then white sugar as the main product. White sugar went to wealthy people, and then the molasses was shipped in the U.S. and the colonies to New England for rum production, because rum was also very saleable. But that meant there was a ton extra. There was actually a flood, I believe in Massachusetts, of molasses one day, because a molasses storage barrel broke. Ooh. It's a horrifying story. And so there was usually extra, and it was easy to keep, it was easy to transport, and people used it to flavor everything. Baked goods, cookies, cakes, candies, savory foods, breads, everything. So it was like an oil spill of molasses. Yeah, when that, when that barrel broke, mm-hmm. yes. It was a, and I'm trying to remember the time of the year. I think it was summer. Gross. And so it was flowing faster than you'd expect. I could be wrong that it's not <laughs> summer, but one of the reasons that molasses fell out of flavor as a major flavoring is refined sugar became less expensive and more abundant. And one thing that Americans do, and it's probably pretty common everywhere, if something was expensive and is no longer expensive, it becomes very culinarily popular. This is mm-hmm. going to show up a few different times in this review of flavor. Yeah. And so refined sugar meant you had money. And it meant that you were fancy. So you were serving it to your guests. (laughs) Nice. You were buying it for your family. There was also a sort of peculiar obsession with white foods in the 40s, 50s, and 60s that was associated with purity. And I'm sure there's an awful lot to unpack (laughs) with that thought process. Oh, I imagine so, yeah. And I don't have time for that at the moment. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's a whole other episode. Feel free to do that at your leisure. Molasses is still used seasonally and often in... Baked beans still, but usually homemade baked beans. It's not the major flavor profile it once was. A lot of uh, store-bought baked beans seem to just be sweet, not molasses sweetened. Yeah. I don't care for store-bought baked beans particularly, personally. Uh, Alcohol production laws have changed a lot in the U.S. since the uh, 18th century. I don't Mm -hmm. know. I don't know if you knew that, Sarah. Are you sure? (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure. I read it on the internet. (laughs) Differences in alcohol production laws disrupted needs for molasses. Uh, Rum was not necessarily the most popular alcoholic beverage anymore. There were also different places 
that started producing distilled alcohol, brandy became more popular, et cetera. There's all kinds of stuff. And slavery was a major component of sugar production. Yeah. And abolition changed the production of the entire industry, albeit slowly because of things like sharecropping and all sorts of institutional ways to try to keep slavery a thing without it calling it slavery. Right. And in fact, uh, a lot of abolitionist communities, such as Quakers, would not consume molasses or white sugar. It was called slave sugar. And I'll get to, I'll talk a little bit about that in a little while. So it was considered kind of a protest to not consume molasses or white sugar. Brown sugar has molasses content? Yes. That's why I thought it was brown. Yeah. And, but it doesn't have the full molasses flavor. Mm-hmm. Molasses has a very strong and distinctive flavor. I like it, but it will change the flavor of whatever you're eating to be molassesy. Mm-hmm. White sugar doesn't do that. And so some of the popularity of white sugar compared to molasses is it doesn't change the flavor of what you're making as much. In Europe, treacle is still eaten in certain baked goods. And sometimes the source of treacle is sugarcane and molas- it's molasses. Sometimes it's a sorghum molasses because sorghum also creates a very sweet syrup. It's more popular in Europe than the U.S., and that's probably a combination of class status ideas, colonization behaviors, and rationing. Mm-hmm. Because the U.S., while we had rationing during World War II, it was not nearly as distinctive or substantial as European rationing and austerity measures after no. and during World War II. Sorghum molasses was popular during the Civil War because white sugar and molasses were hard to get a hold of because of supply chain disruptions, because of abolition of slavery and blockading of southern business ventures. Sorghum is a native African plant, very tolerant, all kinds of growing conditions. It's an impressive plant. It's now used for animal fodder, grain for human consumption, and alcohol production. Those are more profitable than creating sorghum molasses as the major thing to make from sorghum. So that's molasses. It's not as popular because it's not what rich people ate. And also because rum is not as popular of a drink. And also because it makes everything taste like molasses. (laughs) (laughs) It's a nice flavor, but it can get kind of monotonous when you're tasting the same thing all the time right but that's part of why we still use it in certain traditional foods and seasonally because familiarity is appreciable mm-hmm. fruitcake often has molasses in it molasses cookies are often served during the winter holidays right and i would assume it's because molasses keeps yes mm-hmm. next we're going to move on to maple maple syrup maple sugar i've been eating maple candies as <laughs> As Emily's been talking. <laughs> yes, I brought us I brought us treats of maple sugar candy and also Turkish delight. And I'll talk about Turkish delight flavoring in a little while. Maple syrup and sugar is a very old sugar source. Indigenous Americans consumed it and colonizers learned from indigenous Americans how to harvest it. It's mostly associated with breakfast in America now and also probably in Canada. I mean, it's a substantial flavor in Canada. It's mm-hmm. a little less substantially culturally important in the United States, depending on where you are from. I, I get the feeling Vermont and New Hampshire, it's really important. <laughs> Maple flavoring is often added to corn syrup instead of serving with breakfast actual maple syrup, which is a lot less expensive. I also don't really care for it personally. It doesn't taste as good. It's also a common donut flavoring, although that may be regional because I grew up in Tim Hortons country. Michigan has like 
hundreds of Tim Hortons. <laughs> it's your it's your major Tim Hortons hub in the U.S. Maple syrup was used very similarly to molasses. It was used on everything. Cured meat, sweet food, savory. Maple sugar, which is made from cooking maple syrup to a further heating point and then pouring it into containers and allowing it to crystallize as it solidifies. It was used in candy as a sweetener for drinks. It's good in coffee, cookies, baked goods. It was a major flavor because you can harvest it yourself. It's regional, but for some people, it's sort of a year-round flavor because you can harvest enough during the late winter. That's when you harvest maple syrup. The sugar maple is the most abundant source, but red maples you can collect uh, syrup from. And there are non-maple trees you can tap. I'm not going to give you the list right now because you should really, if you're going to do that, don't do it on the basis of this podcast. Really look into <laughs> yeah, it. Right? Don't go out tapping your myrtle trees and yeah. expecting syrup out of them. Like sweet gum? Not sweet gum. It's very toxic. Don't. Oh, really? Don't tap it. I have like four sweet gums in my yard. Yeah, they're the worst trees. I, I, nothing that comes off that tree I would want to eat anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's no longer as popular a general flavor and a general sweetener. It's a strong flavor. Collecting maple syrup is, or collecting sap to make maple syrup is very labor intensive and the trees take a long time to grow. Sugarcane and sugar beet sugars are cheaper, and mm-hmm. coconut sugar is getting cheaper too. I did see instances of people selling maple sugars on Amazon to appeal to those seeking specialized diets with less refined sugars. So it's considered paleo, I guess, for some people, which, sure. I mean, I guess it's not refined. It's just coming from the tree. Yeah, so. it's just sap that's boiled. So the only thing is happening is it's being cooked to a certain temperature. Interesting. I always ended up getting some as a treat at the Michigan State Fair, uh, maple sugar candy. You can get it on Amazon if you can't get it where uh, you live. It's very delicious. And you can actually make it yourself at home with store-bought maple syrup, although it has to be actual maple syrup. And not corn syrup. No. Flavored like maples. Ugh. (laughs) So next we're on to honey. Once you find a bee tree, you can harvest it yourself. (laughs) That's pretty popular. Being able to to get sugar for yourself prior to the expansive and pervasive supply chain structures of today was really popular. That's why maple syrup and sugar were so appealing to people. Same with honey. Honey is good for baking. It makes baked goods last longer before they go stale. And honey never spoils mm-hmm. as long as it's not pasteurized. It's an excellent preservative. Bee trees were so beloved and important that there was a minor war between Missouri and Iowa that involved no casualties, but the destruction of several bee trees as vengeance over a border dispute. So bee trees, you mean like trees with hives in them? Yeah, trees with hives in them. In Europe, it was not terribly uncommon much earlier than in the United States to cultivate bees in beehives. Mm -hmm. But when you're trucking your way through land that is not necessarily something you're used to, which a lot of Americans have done over the time of, well, a lot of immigrants have done over the time of colonizing and establishing the boundaries of America. You're not necessarily going to be trucking along a bunch of bees with you. (laughs) It's just not practical. (laughs) Here's my wagon full of bees. Honey harvesting is very labor intensive and it's kind of dangerous. Yeah. In that you can get, Stung by a bunch of bees. And bears love bee trees. <laughs> and they don't love people. Yeah, I wonder why. 
Honey has a strongish flavor, so it will also alter the flavor of what you're dealing with. And it's liquid, although you can crystallize honey, but it's because it's liquid, it alters the liquid ratios in whatever you're baking. Mm-hmm. It requires more adaptation of a recipe than, say, a granulated sugar might. It's still a moderately popular flavoring and sweetener, but not necessarily for baked goods or candies. It's more like additives to drinks or as, to, as it like a drizzle. It's almost more yeah. like a condiment. Here's oh. a side note. I went to the NC Farmer's Market yesterday, and I got a goodie from Annalore's. It's like a bakery, and she uses all like honey in her recipes. Mm. Holy God, that was good. Anyway, side note. <laughs> yeah, there are some very fine honey recipes. In Ann Burns' book, American Cake, there's a Southern honey cake. It is a very good cake. <laughs> it is still a flavor, like a common flavor in Honey Nut Cheerios, bit of honey candy. And actually, it's part of the flavoring of candy corn. Really? Which is still the most popular Halloween candy. Which staggers me. I like candy corn. Mm -hmm. I think it's pretty tasty. I am aware that what I like and what other people like is not necessarily the same thing. Right. So it's it's striking to me that candy corn remains as popular as it is. I wonder how much of that is just put onto things to decorate them and thrown away. (laughs) So I have noticed that all my life I've been eating stale candy corn. Oh, no. And... That's why I hate it. I've had candy corn that was relatively new, and I'm like, okay, this isn't bad. That's kind of like my story with coconuts. Yeah. When I was young, my family bought a coconut in Michigan, (laughs) and we cracked it open, and we're like, this is awful. And then I got one in college in Michigan, because I was like, I wonder if I just didn't like that because my palate wasn't mature enough. And I was like, this is awful. And then I had one in North Carolina that was fresh and not rotting. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh... I just lived in Michigan and shouldn't be buying fresh coconuts. (laughs) (laughs) So I get it. Freshness matters in uh, Turns out candy corn tastes like styrofoam, sugar styrofoam when it's old. Yeah, it gets all like brittle. Yeah, I didn't didn't know. I just thought that's how candy corn was. Right. How would you know? (laughs) (laughs) That was the candy corn you had available to you. (laughs) So that's the coverage of sort of sweeteners in America and very flavorful sweeteners and how they've fallen out of fashion as major sweetening sweetening sources, but they're not gone by a long shot. And some of them are coming back as people are rejecting white sugar. And a lot of it has to do with diet culture, but it's also not the worst thing in the world to have variable flavors and sources for your food. So turns out there's pros and cons to a lot of things. Now let's talk about the vanilla of its time. <laughs> rose water. Oh, God. <laughs> a dash of rose water was very common in sweet foods. All sweet foods. Cookies, candies, cakes. Pr- probably on like sweet meats. So, you know, mince meats and honey baked hams and all this stuff. It was a very popular flavor in things like marzipan candy. Lots of candies that have fallen out of fashion as well. Oh, why ruin marzipan? It's so good. (laughs) It wasn't ruining it at that time. (laughs) That's true. Rosewater was popularized in Europe due to crusaders. It was invented in the Middle East. It was and remains a very popular flavor in the Middle East and also in the Indian subcontinent. And it's a very old flavor. It's been around forever a lot of things 
and I'm just going to say this, a lot of things that are good were invented in the Middle East and the Indian subcontinent. I agree. We're just going to go with that. After Europeans colonized the United States, Rosewater was popularized in the U.S., particularly through English colonization. And I will say that roses grow really readily in the United States. So it's another source of flavoring you can harvest yourself. Oh, true. And rose water is fresh rose petals steeped in water. So it's not as massive a laborious undertaking as the attar of roses or oil of roses is used in perfume. That is a whole disgusting process involving like goose fat and things. Oh. Vanilla as a flavoring was available before the 1840s, but in 1841, Edmund Albius, a 12-year-old enslaved boy from Réunion, Il Bourbon, which is where we get bourbon vanilla. It doesn't have anything to do with it being made from bourbon. It's from an island in the Indian Ocean. Developed a hand-pollinating technique for the vanilla orchid. Previously, insect pollination was what was relied upon Mm -hmm. for vanilla production. And hand-pollinating was much more reliable in terms of making sure that the flowers grew fruits. So there's a huge increase in vanilla production. And, of course, because why not, the French press claimed both that Edmund was white, he was not, and that he was taught the technique by a white man, he was not. <laughs> I guess in, in, in order to appeal to white customers? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I'm going to bet, yeah. But this massive increase in vanilla production, including the ability to take vanilla orchids from this island and propagate them elsewhere and then more consistently produce fruits meant that vanilla extract became more and more available. Now I'm still talking about rose water. I'll get into vanilla and why it's such a thing, but this is an important reason that rose water is no longer as popular. Right. It became more closely related to soaps and perfumes. I have Turkish delight in front of us, which is a jelly sweet, Mm -hmm. but I don't think it has gelatin in it. And it's most often flavored with rose water. And I put one in my mouth that's rose flavor. And I said, this tastes like soap. It's a sweet candy. But because it's rose flavored to me, because of what I've been culturally exposed to, it tastes like soap. I really like rose water and baklava. A lot of people put honey in baklava. I am of the opinion that honey doesn't belong in baklava. (laughs) I am of the opinion that a sugar syrup made with cinnamon, lemon, and rose water is what belongs in baklava. It's also become, rose water is becoming a more popular skincare ingredient, again, Mm -hmm. because skincare seems to be pretty cyclical. Mm -hmm. Another major reason that in America, rose water fell out of fashion is because a major American maker of rose water was the Shakers. I don't know how much anybody knows about the Shakers, but one of the major tenets of the Shaker religion was no repopulation no kids don't have kids now sometimes they still had kids we're not going to ask those questions stuff happens so there's no generational continuation of making rose water in that community so a major source was lost based on religious tenets i guess and then also western foods that rose water flavored are less popular marzipan is not as popular in the western world as it once was which is sad. I, it's one of my favorite things is marzipan. That's another thing. I only had stale for a very long time. <laughs> so soft marzipan is a very real treat and stale marzipan is not. No, turns out no. <laughs> Neither are things like cream puddings or hmm. syllabubs or anything like that. What are syllabubs? It's like a foamy drink kind of dessert. 
It was like an egg foam. I think egg cream. So, yeah, kind of. Turkish Delight is still available, particularly, I believe Cadbury makes them. It could be the other major, I don't think it's Mars. Anyway, it's a European. Uh, it's available ma- majorly commercially in Europe, and it's also obviously available all over the Middle East. So it's, well, and also because rose water was majorly ingrained into the food culture of Middle East and Indian subcontinent, it's remained popular. Yeah. Compared to, it was imported by colonizers less than 240 years ago in the U.S. And so it didn't have that foothold that it would have in a culture that has been consuming rose water for millennia. Right. I did just have one of the uh, Turkish delights that you brought that was flavored like rose water, and I actually quite enjoyed it. And I'd never really had one before that I enjoyed. This is very good. Good. Mm-hmm. It's the Marmara brand. And I got one that's a variety of little flavors. And they're pretty tasty. Yeah, they are tasty. It's why I've been so quiet. <laughs> <laughs> We also have Violet, which is more popular in Europe and didn't travel yes. as readily to America as Rosewater did. I've never had a Violet-flavored anything. Sarah has. Yeah. I was reading Amazon reviews of Violet-flavored sweets just to see which ones were the nicest because I was going to buy some. And then I read someone's review that it functionally changed their tasting palate eating one of those candies. And I was like, hmm, I don't want to deal with that. That's such a strange thing to say. I've had it and I didn't think it did anything. Like, yeah. Just tasted good. It was interesting, but it tasted good. So I didn't. I didn't buy any. <laughs> <laughs> French violet syrup is what's most commonly available in the U.S. for things like scones and marshmallows. And oh, there's yes. also creme de violette, I think, mm-hmm. which is a liqueur, mm-hmm. which is available in some places. I don't think it's available in North Carolina. Uh, a lot of liqueurs are not available in North Carolina. For whatever reason. Yeah. In England, several pastille and tablet sweets and gums are violet flavored. It's similar in t- culturally to whorehound in that it had medicinal uses. Okay. So that's a big part of why little tablet candies are, are, wa- are flavored that way. Because it's something you can suck on for a cough or a cold or whatever. I don't know that they ha- if violet has medical properties. It's something, you know, what people think has medical properties and what does are not always the same thing. And that can include, by the way, commercial medical preparations. Anyway, next, let's talk about sassafras, sarsaparilla, birch beer, and root beer. Oh, yummy. Sassafras is an indigenous American plant. Its leaves look kind of like mittens. I, uh, I think they're real cute plants. I have a bunch of it growing in the back here. And it was used medicinally for a long time. Mm-hmm. Saffron, which is an extract from the root bark, was used to make medicines, drinks, and candies. It's the original root beer flavor, but it's also carcinogenic, liver cancer specifically. Mm-hmm. The root extract was discontinued in use in around the 1960s, but the leaf extract, or like ground leaves, is safer to consume. It doesn't uh, contain as much saffron. The ground sassafras leaves also called filet, are still sometimes used as a thickener in gumbo. It's sometimes called the only North American flavoring, which I think is absolute absurdity, but... Uh, Yeah, what about maple and honey? And chocolate. And and chocolate. All kinds of... Anyway. Yeah. It's nonsense. Anyway. 
You can get sassafras extract with the saffron removed to get the flavor. It's sometimes used in microbrews, but it's no longer used in root beer. It's got a flavor profile along the lines of lemon, anise, menthol, root beer, and eucalyptus. And it's a precursor to MDMA, apparently. Oh, awesome. Depending on how it is extracted. Now let's go to root beer and birch beer. So root beer used to be made from sassafras. It's now typically flavored with artificially created methyl salicylate, which is closely associated with aspirin. But it was made in earlier times with the tea berry, a.k.a. eastern wintergreen, or black birch bark. It is mostly a beverage and candy flavoring now. It's not considered medicinal anymore. Mm. Like, we don't really have root beer flavored medicine. We have cherry and... <laughs> we have cherry and grape and things like that, but <laughs> Gross. apparently not root beer. It is not super popular worldwide. There are parts of the world where root beer is somewhat popular. And I think a lot of... A common reaction to regions that don't have root beer... I, well, <laughs> I'm trying to use the word endemic, and I think that's a little dramatic. Uh, where root beer is common, I think a lot of them think it tastes like toothpaste. Root beer? Mm-hmm. Like toothpaste? Mm-hmm. Which makes some sense because it has a wintergreen component to it. Yeah. And birch beer, a.k.a. black birch bark, also tastes a lot like wintergreen. The extract does. Yeah, I guess that's true. Sarsaparilla is a plant-based soft drink, and it's not as popular anymore in the U.S., but it is popular in Asia and available in the U.K. and Australia. I love sarsaparilla. It is one of my favorite things. It was originally made from birch oil and sassafras extract, and now it's just made from several different plants or the methyl salicylate. It's just not as popular as root beer, or it is root beer by another name. Yeah. So that's why I put them all in the same category, because they're all very similar things. Mm -hmm. So a big part of why sassafras is not as popular for a flavor anymore is because it's carcinogenic. And root beer is still consumed a lot. It's just an artificially produced flavor. Mm -hmm. And it's also, so why didn't root beer become the vanilla of its day? One, it's got medicinal associations. And a lot of times, medicine flavors don't become the most popular flavor. (laughs) I wonder why. Because you end up associating it with like sick symptoms. Yeah. And it's another very strong flavor. It doesn't mm. complement flavors so much as overpower them. Somewhat related is whorehound. It's a mint relative. And I didn't talk about mint because it's still popular. But whorehound's a mint relative. The flavor is somewhere between root beer, menthol, and licorice. It's a hearty plant. It's used in medicine as a cough remedy for ages. Mm-hmm. And actually, it's still in Ricola. Yep. The, the candies, whorehound candies, served a dual purpose of being medical and also tasty. And I remember a reference to them in Where the Red Fern Grows. That the little boy in Where the Red Fern Grows really liked whorehound candy. Oh, okay. It's native to North Africa, Europe, and Asia, and it was brought to North America by colonizers for home doctoring. It's kind of a controversial flavor because it was medical, and so it never got that popular as a candy. And it was used in the Rock and Rye cocktail. Uh, Rock and Rye is my favorite flavor of Fago. Oh, I've never had it. The Fago or the cocktail? The Fago and the cocktail. Yeah, I've never had the cocktail. It's supposed to be rye whiskey and rock candy, apparently. That sounds amazing. It kind of does look good. <laughs> with, a, with apparently a whorehound component. Uh, but the rock and rye Fago is really good. Oh, okay. I'll find it. So those are some old school flavors that are no longer particularly popular, although you can still access a lot of them. 
How did we get to vanilla? So first, the aforementioned story of vanilla hand pollination. That made it a lot cheaper. Things that were once expensive but are now cheaper become super popular in the United States. Things like gelatin, dietetic fads, things like uh, croissants. If you think of things like crescent rolls, which are very inexpensive, or jello box gelatin, or vanilla extract. When things were expensive and become cheap, they become popular to serve, particularly to guests. Mm-hmm. You think of jello as kind of a party food. Mm-hmm. You think of crescent rolls as you might serve them at a larger dinner, or you'd serve them to guests. You can serve them to your, you know, just your family or yourself as well. But it becomes kind of a way to almost show off. There were also very bad hurricane seasons in Florida in 1837 and in 1846-48. Vanilla hand pollinating was 1841. So around the same time, lemon crops were probably pretty heavily damaged. And lemon was a very popular flavor for a long time. There have been lemons cultivated in Florida for hundreds and hundreds of years, courtesy of the Spaniards. So lemon may have taken a hit at the same time. And this is just me coming to conclusions. This isn't a certainty. But lemon markets may have taken a hit and become more expensive as vanilla became significantly less expensive. Also, shakers aren't supposed to procreate, as I said before, and they were a major source of U.S.-produced rose water. Imported rose water would also be tougher to get a hold of, especially in the 1800s, because of multiple wars we were involved with, with Europe and with ourselves, that involved blockades and disruptions of supply chain management. So if we couldn't make it ourselves, vanilla could be cultivated in the Americas, or it was harder to prevent from spoiling, then we couldn't have it. Lemon also curdles milk products and cannot be used as universally as vanilla. Vanilla is alcohol-based. Mint will overpower rather than complementing other strong flavors. And it's also associated with like toothpaste and breath fresheners. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily considered a full-on desserty flavor. It is to me. It's my favorite flavor. I also like mint a lot. Then there are non-natural vanillas. So there's vanillin, which is actually very hard to distinguish from vanilla in a lot of applications, typically whenever cooked, because Mm -hmm. some of the different aromatic compounds in vanilla that make it taste like vanilla can be destroyed during baking. Vanillin is one of like 250 compounds in vanilla that make it vanilla-y, but it can be synthetically produced. It's very inexpensive, and it's a byproduct of the paper-making process. Mm. Tonka beans can also be a replacement to vanilla beans. If you're looking for real vanilla, be suspicious of inexpensive options. They're probably not real vanilla. Castorium. This one was news to me. It's FDA approved for food. It's the exudate from scent sacks from an adult beaver. What? And it's used in vanilla or raspberry flavoring, which I think are two very different flavors personally. And called natural flavoring. It's a beaver scent sacks tasting like raspberry? Or vanilla. Or vanilla. That's so disturbing. It's pretty weird. And it's just called natural flavoring. It's called natural. Why? Yeah. The the terminology in the flavor industry is intentionally obscure and murky so that you don't entirely know what you're consuming. (laughs) And then there is, and I'm probably going to mispronounce this, guayacol. It's synthesized from petrochemicals and like 85% of vanilla flavoring available today is this guayacol synthate interesting instead of being produced from vanilla orchids or even vanillin or 
Beaver Sensex. Or or Beaver Sensex. <laughs> so that is where all the old flash fashion flavors went and why vanilla is the king right now. Now there's a there may be a new a new king in town. Pumpkin spice. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk about pumpkin spice because I am personally of the opinion that Halloween season starts August 1st. <laughs> Yay! But I don't like pumpkin spice lattes. I don't either. I like pumpkin spice breads and like bready things, but in a latte, it's just a wrong thing to me. It's not my preference either, and I'm not poo-pooing people no, who like it. Like you like your thing. It's fine. It's yours to drink. I'm not going to sip it. I'm not <laughs> exactly. I'm not going to steal your latte. And as as a barista, I have I had made plenty of them in my life, so I'm not against it, but I'm not going to drink it. <laughs> it was started by Starbucks in 2003, yeah. which seems like it seems like it's been around forever, so the fact that it was just 2003, which I know is 16 years ago, but it still feels very recent. To me, it was wildly popular. It was more popular than any other seasonal anything they offered. And I think it is still more popular than any seasonal anything they have ever offered. Yeah. And that's what kicked off the pumpkin spice flavor fad. Mm-hmm. You can get pumpkin pie spice. You can get pumpkin pie. Maybe even like McDonald's had pumpkin pie, the pocket pie things that they serve for instead of apple Maybe before 2003, you could get a pumpkin one. I don't know. I don't think so. I think it was all like cherry and apple. That's funny. So Starbucks, Starbucks, it's everywhere, man. (laughs) It's the the Google of coffee. (laughs) It's not a wrong thing to say. So I just have some thoughts on why pumpkin spice or pumpkin spice lattes and pumpkin spice everything is so popular. They're usually pumpkin spice things tend to be very, very sweet. Yes. They tend to be used with white chocolate instead of darker milk chocolate. Mm -hmm. And white chocolate is very sweet. So people who have a sweet tooth and enjoy sweets, it'll appeal to them as well. Mm -hmm. And it may even add a little bit of flavor nuance to things like white chocolate that would have very little otherwise. Mm. Other than just vanilla. Yeah, and white chocolate really doesn't taste like anything but cocoa butter. So Mm -hmm. it's like kind of a cocoa buttery sweet taste. Also, fads are fun. Yeah, that's true. And I'm not here to poo on anyone having fun. Right. It's a way to usher in a season that a lot of people seem to like. I like autumn a lot. I am. Uh, I, do, I don't do well in the sun. <laughs> <laughs> so when there's a few clouds in the sky, I'm a little happier. It's also, because it's trendy, I think the rise of social media has added to the appeal of pumpkin spice because you get to show other people that you're consuming pumpkin spice things seasonally. So you do it for the gram, as as children say today. They for might the not gram. even say that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I may have just killed that fab. For the snaps. <laughs> the pumpkin spice latte actually didn't contain any pumpkin until 2015. And this was a, a caused an uproar in the food blogger community. <laughs> and it's called pumpkin spice latte. I would think that would contain the spices that are involved in pumpkin pie, personally. But a lot of people felt that it should have some pumpkin in it. And they were also real mad that it was artificially colored. Like, really angry. And so, Starbucks was like, okay, fine. We'll put a little bit of pumpkin in it, and we'll use natural coloring. 
And so they did. The amount of pumpkin is negligible and you can't really taste it. <laughs> I always like the coming of the pumpkin spice season because I just get tired of North Carolina summer. I'm just ready for it to cool down, even the fraction of amount that it does here. Yeah. And it's just always nice. I'm like, oh, I can finally go outside and not have hot flashes all day. <laughs> I can open my window in the morning for an hour. Exactly. <laughs> It's upper 80s instead of upper 90s. Exactly. So that's where all the old-fashioned flavors went, Sarah. A Yay! lot of them are still around except for the carcinogenic ones. Except for the carcinogenic ones. Yeah, don't eat those. Please, don't eat them. Well, and if you do, eat them sparingly. Yeah, sure. 